Pleased to be joined today by Danny Strong, the actor, the writer, the director, and most importantly, uh, for my purposes, my friend. Danny, welcome. Hey, great to be here, Steve. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. So, Danny, we got to know each other. Um, your screenplay, um, your first one that you wrote on a, a, about politics, presidential politics, was Recount, mm -hmm. which, which followed the 2000 uh, Florida cliffhanger between George Bush and, and Al Gore. And you, you captured that and that was made into an award-winning HBO film. And then you took another crack at it, um, which is where I met you in the aftermath of the John McCain campaign, when you direct, excuse me, you wrote the screenplay, um, off of the Mark Halperin, uh, and John Heilman book Game Change. And uh, that's where we got to know each other. Absolutely. Yeah, it was uh, it was on Game Change. I remember I, I interviewed you for the project. Um, I, I normally don't talk about people that I interview. All the interviews I do on all my projects are on background, but you discussed it publicly about a decade ago. So I felt like we right. were, I'm OK to bring it up now. And uh, we had we had a great, uh, really great interview. I remember I thought it was uh, quite powerful, actually, hearing hearing the tale of of you know the McCain Palin campaign through straight from you and I interviewed about 25 people on the on that movie just uh, pretty much solely people from the McCain Palin campaign uh and and everyone had I, I wouldn't say everyone had totally different opinions there were sort of three camps of people that had a huge problem with Governor Palin people that really liked Governor Palin and people that uh saw both sides and 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 thought you know so saw both sides of her uh so it was pretty fascinating sort of uh journey through that through that that moment in history and when you look at that moment in history and your affinity from uh, for politics against this moment uh in history which is i guess closing in on a generation later um at at some level you are a actor Mm -hmm. You are a writer, and we'll talk more about that in a in a minute. And you've become a director as as well. So you are a storyteller at heart, and you're somebody who has a deep attachment to the country, uh, a deep knowledge, and a, uh, a deep appreciation for the for the political history of the of the country. How do you, how do you see this moment? Through your unique lens. Well, I thought you could ask me how I saw that moment compared to this moment and the relationship between the two. Uh, I'll, I'll just say real quickly, I view the Sarah Palin as the prologue to the moment we're living now. It's or the precursor to the moment we're living now. It seems that um, that what she was speaking about in her appeal a sort of um, anti-establishment, bringing that into the mainstream, you know, attack on the, the blue bloods of the Bush family was a phrase she would use to, to great applause. And it seemed like that was the moment where, uh, where it was clear what a big populist streak there was in the Republican Party. And I remember that we, and by we, I mean, Jay Roach and I, the director who made Game Change, uh, felt that felt like the core story of that piece was the danger of when our elections 
become more like reality shows than um, a choice between people who are most qualified for the job. And, and, and many people in the McCain campaign viewed Obama in that way as, as, as a lightweight, right? As, as, as more of a media figure than someone who was seasoned and ready to be president of the United States. And I think that our theme that, um, that you know, when our presidential elections become reality shows, as opposed to contests for who is most qualified uh, and best ready to handle the job of president of the United States, when that happens, that we all lose. And I think that it's, it's I, I don't know if it's ironic or just a natural progression that in fact, a reality TV show uh, host would then go on to become president of the United States in, in the very next election after the film came out. Not that there's any correlation, but I think our theme was, was pretty spot on uh, to the times. And then it went to a place that was quite shocking to, to all of us. And I think yeah. many people in the country. Now I attribute, I attribute our, our situation, our political situation in the country. My, my view of politics is it is downrange from culture. I think a lot of the problems and ratings on CNN, for example, um, are a result. They have a different construct, right? They have a they have a construct in their shows that culture is downstream from politics, right? So Washington D.C. accounts for 0.02 percent of the national population on any given day, right? You watch domestic daytime CNN in the United States, eighty percent of the people will will appear from Washington D.C. And mostly the balance of them will appear from, from New York City. 38% of America has a college degree, uh, which is an astonishing statistic when you cite that at a dinner party with mutual friends of ours, right, who really don't have an appreciation for that. Um, when, you, when, you look at, when you look at the country, there's a, there is a conventional wisdom that this moment is causal from Sarah Palin um, from a populist perspective, but I think it deeply discounts this strain in American politics, which has always been present. And I think manifested it uh, when we were younger, um, like really young, uh, you know, like barely adults. You may not have been yet. Um, I always forget which one of us is, <laughs> which one of us is was older and younger, but I, um, but Pat Buchanan, for example, mm -hmm. um, George Wallace, you know, we talk about the greatest generation with a lot of reverence in this in this country. You know, we also forget that Strom Thurmond was a was a D-Day uh, paratrooper. Uh, so we're a lot of segregationists. Um, but the populism that that Trump that Trump represents on a on a straight line has antecedents that go further back than Sarah Palin. So when you talk about Palin through that experience as a precursor to that moment, do you mean that through a cultural lens, the, the overwhelming of celebrity against any pretense of qualification, mm -hmm. the abandonment of truth? Uh, she was the first prolific liar uh, to run for national office in that it was very disorienting in that moment. First time in my experience where you just had someone constantly who wouldn't tell the truth, right, about big subjects, you know, small subjects, trivial subjects. You, you just couldn't get a straight answer. Mm -hmm. And that was that was a third rail in American politics.
in that in that moment in time or so I thought. So how how do you process that? Because well, she's clearly not the start of uh, of of populism and in a rancid type of populism in American in life. So do you, do you mean it culturally, politically? How do you sort that? Well, I don't think she created this movement or this moment. <clears throat> I think she just perhaps uh, tapped into it in a way that was very organic to who she was. I don't even necessarily think it was hyper-calculated. And I think it was what was, say, surprising to someone like me who had grown up in the Reagan administration George H. Bush and then George W. Bush, where it seemed like that was the mainstream of Republican politics, was, was that establishment politics of, of, of those people, of that, that group, that regime, that were all connected to a certain extent. So when Sarah Palin came in and represented what seemed like a whole different voice in the party, it was surprising to me because I didn't realize how big that voice was in, was in the party. Uh, and then with the election of Trump, it seemed as if, oh, that voice is actually perhaps a bigger voice than the establishment voice that existed free, Palin sort of bringing it back to a certain extent. I mean, what do you think of that? Do you think that, you know, you were sort of a, you were a member of this, of this Republican establishment. Were you surprised that it was usurped by MAGA and by Trumpian politics? Um, or is is like what what was your reaction to that when it first happened? Here, here's like what I think happened that I that I think is broadly discounted in the in the contemporary history of mm -hmm. how all this came to be. But what happened in 2008, um, as you well know, as as you as you come to the end of this campaign. Uh, by by anybody who was a political professional could read the polls. Uh, it was pragmatic about events and what was going to happen. It was clear that John McCain was going to was going to lose this election. And there's that very famous moment in the in the campaign where McCain goes out, takes the microphone back from a woman who had disparaged Senator Obama, said he was a Muslim, he was going to destroy the country. McCain takes the microphone back he says no ma'am he's a he's a good man we just have we just have differences of opinions what what had preceded that um were angrier and angrier crowds um and when john mccain would say the name barack obama you started to hear and i'll never forget the first time i heard it you heard the n-word which was which was shock in 2008 in a in a crowd um and it was, I remember looking at Mark Salter, uh, who's John McCain's longtime chief of staff. Did we, did that just happen? And it did happen. And it happened more and more in the national press. Um, to their credit, I don't think anybody was necessarily gratuitously wanting to write about that and to attach it to John McCain, but it was unavoidable. You had to mention it. It was happening. And we took John uh, aside after one of these events and and told him the campaign was over. Um, that, you know, in essence, he couldn't say his opponent's name out loud. Um, his opponent was going to be the president of the United States. You do, as the Republican nominee, have a fiduciary responsibility as the head of the party to run through that finish line as hard as you can, because there's a lot of implications down ballot. So a person who gets involved 
as a Republican who's running for state assembly on their own name, merits, ideas, right, shouldn't lose an election because you quit in the last couple couple of days. But nevertheless, you know, his themes flattened out, broadened out in preparation for the moment when Barack Obama becomes the first black president of the United States. In that moment, there's this famous dinner that takes place in Washington, D.C. that's become the stuff of legend. Mitch McConnell, a bunch of other Republican leaders, while the inaugural balls are going on, all vow to each other to make Barack Obama one-term president uh, by making him an unsuccessful one, right? And this era of hyper-partisanship is a departure from the American tradition because you had a generation of people, even if they were fierce opponents like Daniel Inouye and Robert Dole, the fact that they had spent years together in a hospital recovering from their wounds, sustained in combat, right, helped them understand they weren't each other's enemies, right? They they had they had different visions about how to perfect the union. They understood the 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 brutality of politics, you know, in, in America, but they understood that they understood that the country was first. Nature abhors a vacuum. In, in the Washington of January of 2009, the country was in economic crisis and Republicans were completely out of power. And into that vacuum stepped a new leader. What became the head of the party was Fox News. And who became the head of the party was Roger Ailes. And Roger Ailes was the Republican king until he was dethroned by Donald Trump. And their war was the battle of Megyn Kelly. Donald Trump went out and said something appalling. And in that moment of time, you have to remember, Megyn Kelly was Fox News's branded star, period. Fox News superstar. She was the person fronted, put forward, more and more, she was the Roger Ailes protege. She had been made super famous. Donald Trump attacks her in the most grotesque way. Roger Ailes basically says, we're going to put down Trump like a rabid dog. Roger Ailes and Fox made a run at Donald Trump. The king is dead. Long live the king. Right? This, is, this is fundamental, I think. To, to understanding what what happened over over those years. The other truth of the matter is, is that whether it was Donald Trump calling in clearly, right, from laying in bed, you know, with a with a breakfast donut, um, you know, to various morning shows, um, whether it was the freak show that was produced by CNN, Donald Trump was huge ratings. He was always right about that. And, and so by 2015, 2016, seven years after, um, there is a cultural shift. I think the clear death of the Watergate era of political journalism, it's, it's reality show politics of which the journalism is a, is a main part of the economic circuit and a main part of the business, and a main part of the show. And, and that's what I think substantially happened. 
one of the amazing things that I that I thought after the McCain campaign that I couldn't have been more dead ass wrong about was saying that this this is a person who has has produced a PhD in unfitness. And there's this question that basically she says, hey, none of this is my fault, my reputation. We had these terrible handlers, you know, Steve Schmidt's fault. You know, I'm a I'm a genius. Now, all these many years later. Her opportunity to fly like an eagle, right, has not been hindered by me whatsoever, right? Because I haven't seen her since election night in in 2000 in 2008. What what the what the premise was, right, was 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 always that if if not for these handlers, right, if not for, you know, if not for this, you know, my true authentic self, right, the people will respond to it. And I guess what I thought was that people would reject the obvious incompetence. I grew up as a Yankee fan in New York, right? People don't like losers. Mm-hmm. And whether it was chucking the turkeys into the, you know, the the machine at Thanksgiving, you're watching this. But the result of it for her was a million dollar Fox contract. And she was never, not one time ever, in all her years on Fox, ever asked a single substantive question. And I routinely say, Right, that Fox News isn't a journalistic news organization, but that's not the position of the New York Times and the Washington Post and NBC News, so on and so forth, who exchange uh, film with them in the White House pool and stand up for them routinely as a journalistic organization in good standing. So I I think about all of that as having a, a major role, the fusion of reality, television, news, and politics into a monetizable uh, industry. And and so when Eisenhower talked about the military-industrial complex, what we have is the Trump-industrial complex. And um, it's not been good for the country, is how I say it. Do you think that, say with these recent texts that have been coming out and emails where you've seen these... uh, Fox celebrities bashing Trump, does that penetrate um, the the right wing sphere at all? Well, um, one of the one of the most successful um, advertising campaign in history, um, judged by results, right? That was a that was a public service campaign. Were ultimately the anti smoking campaigns. Now. When they first started advertising saying, stop smoking, it's going to kill you. And those ads were targeted to young people. Guess what happened? They stopped smoking. No, more smoking. More smoking. (laughs) More smoking, right? (laughs) Don't do it. Uh This is something I think fundamental to the American character, which is don't tell me what to do. Right? Defiance embedded in everyone's genetic code who who Mm -hmm. came to this country born in this country, don't tell me what to do. What eventually worked was when people figured out the cigarette companies had been lying to, had been playing them as fools. Now, at the end of the day, when do you snap in and realize that you've been conned, that you've been duped, that you've been lied to, 
And for anybody that that's happened to, right, that's a humiliating experience, right? Because that that brings up a lot of lot of self humiliation, a lot of lot of self shame, right? Whether it's in a personal relationship, whatever, this applies this applies to politics as well. And and so, I think it's I think it becomes very difficult, right? You know, for people to back away from a position that is forged in a sense of community identity. So, so we live in a time of isolation and disconnection pre-COVID. And, and so what MAGA is, though it may be an island of misfit toys to some degree, right, is a community, right? And, and so that that community has turned vitriolic, extremist, xenophobic right these are these are not none of these things are novel inventions right in in american life uh all the way all the way through mm -hmm. well there was a really interesting moment that wasn't really talked about that much recently um where you know trump had tweeted on true social whatever that's called i guess you don't tweet on true social posted on true social um that he was going to be indicted and people need to protest in the streets. He was indicted. Where were the protests, right? right. Uh, you saw very little protests. And I remember that night uh, I was going back and forth between Fox News and Newsmax, and they kept just cutting to just this group of people outside of Mar-a-Lago, and it was like 10, 20. It's a really small group of people. And the fact that was the only people they were cutting to uh, told me they had nowhere else to go. That the national well, protest didn't happen anywhere. Well, so was that a sign? You know, did they feel like, oh, you told me to come out on January 6th and a lot of us went to jail and now we're we're in jail. Fool me once, you know, shame on shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Do you think that had anything to do with the lack of protests that occurred after his indictment? Well, I've I, I have written about that and I, I've talked about it on on this platform, but but I think that that is a profound point, right? That you just made, but but I analyze it, I think, a little bit differently in that it speaks to the reality distortion field, right? That's imposed on the country by a profit hungry media, right? That routinely distorts reality, right? So so here's what I mean by that. Let's let's apply an ethic, right, to this. Right about the public interest. So if you look at Donald Trump's tweets, right, leading up to that, to me, if I'm an editor in a news organization and, I, and I'm trying to fairly cover this issue, what is it that Donald Trump said? What, what I think he said pretty clearly in those tweets is he called for political violence in the country. He called for people to turn out in mass protests and he intimated uh, if you want to cover it as conservatively as possible, uh, political violence. Do you, do you dispute that at all? That that's, that that was his intent. Are you referring to the January six tweets or the pre-indictment tweets? I'm talking the pre-indictment tweets. Uh, I, I I won't dispute that. Okay. I don't think it's I don't think it was nearly as aggressive as the January six tweets, um, which I felt were even more explicit. But but nonetheless, it, it was the. They were similar, for sure. Would you would you acknowledge that the follow-on tweets post-indictment 
don't have to be as aggressive necessarily as the January 6th tweets, just by virtue of them occurring after the bloody events of January 6th. Meaning, right, we have a we have a real world example now of Trump's tweets and words, right, calling mm-hmm. calling for such an action, right? We have a real world example of that that should that should that should ease everybody's lack of imagination about what could happen. Sure. Fair point? Absolutely. Okay. So when I look at that event, right, what, what I think happened, right, that the thing that didn't happen is the headline. Donald Trump called for mass protests and intimated violence, and no one showed up, except for, right, an army of American media, global media, filming each other in the 10 nut jobs out in Mar-a-Lago. Mm-hmm. Right now, if you have a camera crew at the hurricane and there's three idiots surfing in the in the waves, right? Does that mean America goes surfing in the hurricanes? Right. It doesn't. Right. So so there's an illusory effect right on on this that I, that I think is very damaging. Right. Because it it, it 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 places a level of attention on focus and a level of attention and focus on Trump and 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 gives him a power, right? That's that that is from a chicken and an egg perspective, you know, I'm not sure which. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I I don't I don't necessarily see it going away. No. Um it, it doesn't seem like it's it's it'll it'll ever go away. Well, I think that one of the things that is um an important part of your um incredible career um which includes one of the co-creators of the hit empire uh you wrote the last two hunger games movies uh, in addition to game change and and recount uh the butler uh you were involved in um you uh i wrote the butler you wrote the you wrote the butler and um, and I think made a seminal contribution um, to what will be watched 50 years from now, 75 years from now, and be one of the, the clearest and, and most vivid artistic portrayals that helps understand uh, what happened in this era of American life. And, and I think that is downrange uh from what occurred in the opioid epidemic um that you wrote and directed so brilliantly in Hulu's Dope Sick starring mm-hmm. Michael Keaton and I want to talk to you about that um uh, thank I you, think, because I think that empathy and understanding um are fundamental to being able to to work our our way out of this now you and I have talked about this we live on the coast. Um, we hang out with people generally, um, you know, from the coast. I, I grew up in a middle class town in 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 New Jersey. Um, you know, I, I grew up culturally as far away as you could uh, from Appalachia uh, as you as you as you could in this as you could in this country. But but what I wanted to say when you think about these people, the Trump voter. And that's who we're talking about in a state like West Virginia, rural Virginia, 
and you uh, you told their story, and it's a tragic one. And so, let me. What did you learn about those those people in your in your creation of of Dope Sick? What did what did you learn? You know, maybe about yourself in the in the process. Um, some prejudices that that you know preconceptions that that you might have. Um, did you pick up any empathy from these people? Or do you understand without judgment what what it is about Trump, um, uh, demagogue though he may be, you know that these that these people are are responding to? Yeah, well, you know, there's there's uh, when I'm writing something, it's sort of all my all my personal beliefs pretty much go out the window because I'm trying to create characters and I'm trying to tell their story as as truthfully, as accurately, and as dramatically. And by dramatically, I don't mean faux drama or melodrama in a way that's, you know, maintains uh, a sense of the truth, but I try to do it as 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 fully as possible, right? So empathy is one of the key words I use in, in writing all my characters, including Sarah Palin, including Richard Sackler, right? And they're, by the way, I don't view them as similar people in any way. So I don't want to, I don't want to say that Sarah Palin's like Richard Sackler at all, really. But, but I try to get into their headspace and I try to get into what makes them tick, what, what makes them aggrieved, um, and in the case of, you know, my, my characters in Appalachia, it was, it was, I, I was, it was nothing but, but, you know, empathy and understanding, you know, trying to understand exactly where they were coming from. A lot of that comes from watching YouTube videos that they make uh, of just going online and you just go onto YouTube and all of a sudden you just see videos people are making and you start to, you start to really get a sense of who they are. And in the case of Appalachia, they really hate Hollywood portrayals of them. They think they are just um, stereotyped uh, as in, in sort of the most extreme possible way. So there's a lot of uh, hostility towards um, TV shows and films and how they're portrayed. And I, I, I knew that going into this process. And when I started watching some videos, I thought, oh, oh, this, this isn't going to be a problem to avoid these stereotypes because these are just normal people like everyone else. There's this, this, this sort of extreme version that you see on, on television is, is, is the extreme version of people in that, in that region, not, not what everyone is like, or not even what a majority of people are like. And so I found a normality, um, something that I could personally relate to and understand. And as far as the, the elements of, of Trumpism and, and where I saw the appeal with that, with that region in particular was sort of twofold. One was, one was um, the fact that Trump had an intense anti-government message, that the government is corrupt uh, and needs to be destroyed and torn down. The cover, the government is your enemy. Well, in the case of the opioid crisis, the sure FDA, was. huh? It sure was. Yeah, yeah. The FDA said gave them a, a label that said this drug is safe. And then it turns out that the guy who gave uh, Purdue that label goes and works for Purdue Pharma. And literally one of the most single corrupt actions to cause as much death and destruction as may have ever happened. In millions, the millions, millions. It'll, yeah. it'll, it'll be millions of people. And it's not just it's the people that died, but the people that lost decades of their life, that lost family members, 
that lost their relationship with family members. I mean, th that goes into tens of millions of people that are suffering because of these decisions that were made by the FDA that were clearly corrupt and dishonest. And so my government message is going to resonate 100% of people whose entire life has been defined by what this drug has done to either them or their friends or their family. And so then how do you process? What's the word that that you would use? I, I would start with arrogance, mm -hmm. right? But on the on the part of government, right? On the part of media, let's say during COVID, um, when people say, hey, wait a second, out of these communities, you know, a version of, aren't you the same people who told me that this stuff was good to go? And it's wiped out my community. I know a half a dozen people who were killed by it, right? Another half dozen that were strung out by it. I don't trust you. Go, go fuck yourself. And what, what I saw in the coverage was precious little of that understanding or explanation, right, by way of coverage, right, to help shed light on what some of that's about, because I, I think a lot of that has to do with the opioid epidemic. Oh, significantly. And, and also he was uh, talking about it. Trump was talking about it in the 2006 campaign, you know, and he was talking about it in, in ways that I don't no one else was talking about it or, or, or literally, yeah, and anyone else. So you combine those two factors of this anti-government, uh, the government is corrupt and needs to be destroyed to people who the government, the corrupt government destroyed their lives, destroyed their families' lives, destroyed their friends' lives. And then simultaneously, he's actually talking about the issue itself in a way no one else is talking about. Well, of course, it's going to be appealing. Uh, how could that not resonate in a way that's that's completely understandable? Um, I think there was another element uh, to Trump's appeal, and this didn't come out in the show, but this came out in um, interviews I did with people in the region. So I'm constantly, you know, I spend, I'm just driving around, going from city to city, uh, town to town, talking to people, uh, taking these sort of road trips as part of my research process. Uh, and it's completely fascinating and, and, and really interesting when you talk about us being from the coasts. It's a great way to get a completely different mindset of what's going on. How, how do you find people to talk to? Just take us through that process. You just oh. roll into town and go to the diner? or Yes and no. You know, first I start off with um, with a set of people that I need to interview. You know, the people that are um, the characters that I'm portraying uh, are tangentially involved with the characters that I'm portraying. And I either kind of reach out to them, cold email them, or I use a contact. You know, Beth Macy had written the book Dope Sick. Uh, so Beth had interviewed a number of people. So she, on some cases, reached out to them on my behalf. Certain people, she said, don't have me reach out to them. You will have no luck. <laughs> you need to, to, to try yourself or go through someone else. So I would cold, cold call people. And then from there, it just splinters off to, um, is there anyone else I can talk to? to literally just at dinner, I'm just sitting there uh, and I just have conversations with people I go to a bar, I have a conversation with the bartender, right? You know, find out, oh, there's a sheriff who dealt with, dealt with this issue a lot. So I go and I talk to the sheriff. 
right? While I, before I talk to the sheriff, I'm sitting there. There's some other people in the office. I just, you just kind of chat people up. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty innocent uh, and extremely interesting. But, you know, I did these interviews uh, to early 2019. So it was, we were still, you know, deep in the Trump administration, pre-pandemic, uh, and, and sort of, you know, what had happened in 2016 was still very, very resonant, very raw with people. What I think is so incredible about Dopesick is that you could literally spend the rest of your career um, writing scripted series about the consequences of what the Sackler family did. You could do that till you're 150 years old. Sounds like a dark writing career. You'll never, <laughs> you'll never run out of stories because yeah. because the human misery of that, you yeah. know, I think manifests itself. For example, in a city like Los Angeles or San Francisco, um, it's metastasized. It's evolved. Right now, you have a heroin production taking place in in Mexico. You have hundred plus thousand Americans being killed by fentanyl. We have huge issues in our cities. We have Republican members of Congress talking about bombing Mexico. And you have political leaders, right, like Gavin Newsom, who are forced to, to make this difficult choice. And, I, and I, I was thinking about the choice that he faces. And it's, and it's that California is going to spend $15 billion uh, trying to interdict, deal with, the massive homelessness problem, um, and it is an ambitious project. Uh, you know, Gavin Newsom's not walking away from the problem. He's staring it out of its face. He's he's saying it's a difficult problem, demanding uh, accountability from local officials with the money and the programs. But you think about that, right? Fifteen billion dollars. Right? That's where it's going. It's mm -hmm. not going into the universities. It's not going into the it's not going into the elementary schools. And so the societal cost, right, at scale of of what occurred starting in um, really an epidemic of the working class who were injured on the job and who were prescribed these pills um, a generation later. Um, the magnitude of this crisis might just be getting started in a lot of ways. Well, I, I think you're spot on about the homeless issue. I've felt that way um, for quite a while, pretty early in my research in the in the project that uh, one just when my understanding of what an opioid addiction does to you uh, and the way the homeless crisis has exploded in the last two decades um, I think that that's another uh, another tragedy of Purdue Pharma uh, and and what they what they began. Um, I think that it's 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 a complete byproduct of it. Um, and and you know mental illness and and people that have opioid addictions. I mean that's a huge huge portion of our homeless population, and it's another massive tragedy of this entire chapter and, and you know the the you know what's happening with fentanyl right and how deadly fentanyl is and how literally one pill kills uh is is what well, you said how it had to, how it's metastasized into this and that's exactly the right word 
And it keeps happening. Uh, if you look at sort of the cycle of this all, which began in 1996 with the launch of OxyContin. You, there's a direct line to this drug and, and what it's done to the country uh, with with the prescription, you know, building, building, and by 2000, 2001, 2002, it's starting to blow up. And in 2002 is when other companies really got into the game when the FDA changed the label to say that this drug could be used for an extended period of time, i.e. indefinitely, right? So that's another defining moment in this crisis when everything sort of exploded to the next level. But when you talk about writing until writing the story for the rest of my life, it's not just the dark story of addiction and the drug metastasizing and opioids metastasizing, but the story of government corruption and government influence uh, being heavily influenced by moneyed interest against the welfare of the population. It just it it doesn't end over and over. I mean, the decisions that have been made in the last 20 years uh, on behalf of politicians, you know, they passed a law in 2015 that gutted the DEA's ability to stop um, drug companies from shipping too many drugs out. Right. It, it's it literally was designed to hobble the DEA's ability to fight a corrupt company like Purdue Pharma. How does that happen? It's so stunning that that occurred. And that occurred during the Obama administration. Um, so it's it starts to cross bipartisan lines. You know, in the show, we take a um, we take a real punch at, at Chris Dodd when we show Chris Dodd just using his exact wording in congressional hearings praising Purdue Pharma. Well, this was in 2001 um, when, when it became publicly known at that point. There were already news stories at that point about OxyContin being much more addictive than we thought. Has, any, has anyone asked them in the intervening years to and held them account to it and said, uh, what were you, what were you doing? Chris Don? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's been in documentaries, you know, it's it's uh, uh, it's covered. Alex Gibney covers it pretty well in his documentary about Chris Dodd and Chris Dodd's actions. Um, I don't it's not as famous as it should be. Uh, the, the 2015 law that hobbled the DEA, uh, that's not as famous as it should be, but it's stunning what occurred and it keeps happening over and over and over again. Um, and it's it's government you know, government in bed with money and interest uh, instead of protecting the, the population from from what what this drug did and what it can do. And don't don't you think that there would be a market for that? Right. From a just from a business model in the news. Right. Accountability journalism. Right. We're going to we're going to go pursue, hunt down, tell these stories versus the WW, you know, F version of politics where, you know, a town hall is. Uh, promo like it's an MMA fight, um, mm -hmm. you know, on, on, you know, even the, you know, the, the most boring subjects. Yeah. I, I don't, um, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I mean, they, there's certainly, I feel like there's been coverage of, of the opioid crisis over the years, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem to have an effect. Um, like I said, in 2000 and 2001, there were news stories blowing up about the dangers of OxyContin. There were news stories about DEA raids uh, involving OxyContin. And, um, and nonetheless, 
it 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 never seems to slow down uh, the prescribing and the usage. And I I think part of that comes from the power of the drug itself, um, how addicting the drug is, how how it takes over your brain to a certain extent. But I've been pretty baffled by the medical industry, how ever since it became famous, I keep talking about how it became famous in 2001, because it, it's it's still, I find it very shocking how little action was taken post 2001 when it when it was becoming so well known as this, as this addictive drug. It was being called hillbilly heroin. I don't know if you remember Rush Limbaugh was a major news story that he had become addicted to Oxycontin. So it wasn't under the radar at that certain point, but I've spoken to people in the medical profession doctors at hospitals that are grateful for dope sick because they felt like they had been under pressure from hospital administrations and administrators to prescribe opioids so that when these patients leave, they're, they're not in pain so that they don't write a bad review about the hospital, about the doctor. And that what one, uh, who was a head of a major medical institution told me was that he's able to use dope sick as a way to push back against upper levels at hospital administrations uh, from overprescribing, saying, "Hey, look at dope sick. Look at what happened." And so that that was, you know, an example of how the show could be useful because hospitals are pushing their doctors still uh, to prescribe this medication so that people will leave the hospital uh, pain free uh, when, in fact pain can be part of the healing process and can be a very important part of the process. You know, one of, one of the, one of the examples I use all the time, talk about this, this kind of moment in American politics is a, is a place that you will be familiar with called Panem. Mm -hmm. Tell us about Panem. You go. Well, Panem, Panem is the capital. Oh, oh, oh we're the, talking hunger games. Of the, of the autocratic capital. Okay. Hunger games. Sure. Right. Sure. Um, when you when you look at all of this, having written those written those movies, you see mm -hmm. you see some similarities. Yeah. Well, someone <laughs> made an ad that was uh, intercutting President Snow with President Trump, uh, and they sounded exactly alike. I think uh, certainly um, what Suzanne Collins was up to in in uh, those in those books was was an example you know, it was a parable against totalitarianism. It was one of the reasons why I wanted to 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 write them, uh, to be involved in the in the adaptation, is because I felt like uh, a story of totalitarianism and the dangers of it uh, is is um, is uh, to be able to do that in mainstream entertainment is extremely ex extremely important and useful. So, uh, but again, you know, I I sometimes wonder. You get involved in these projects and. A thing like Hunger Games that that is as big a hit as you could be. It's this cautionary tale um, against uh, you know the, the the evils of of totalitarianism and where that could go. Um, and sometimes the media itself feels like an example of the Hunger Games, right? Feels like we're like we're like in the movie the way the media covers certain stories for sport. Uh, it's it's very What's an uh, example of that for you. Um, hmm. You know, a lot of the um, yeah, a, a, a lot of with the particularly with anything to do with with government action, the way that it's covered is a win or a loss for one party or the other. 
And as opposed to, hey, this is something that passed, by the way, for, for either party. I, there's things that Republicans passed that I thought, yeah, that's actually, that's very useful. Uh, and yet the media covers it as a win for them and a loss for them or a win for them and a loss for them, as opposed to what this policy does for the country, right? Why does everything always have to be framed as a blood sport between the two parties, as opposed to how useful is this? What is actually being achieved? It's it's turning uh, the media coverage of, of government affairs into a battle between two sides, as opposed to what's being accomplished, how it's moving the country forward in either a positive way or a negative way. But I think that's a perfect example of sort of the blood sport of media coverage. One of the great strengths of of America, I think, is our creative class, mm -hmm. uh, our actors, our musicians, our writers, our authors. And you, you you don't have to, you know, I was in Vietnam a couple of weeks ago and was at a bar in this little coastal town way on and there was a soccer game on international crowd watching it and they had a band out there these vietnamese singers and it was all american songs right it was all american mm -hmm. all british songs right so you talk about cultural power right no no one is sitting there singing right you know the chinese communist party <laughs> propaganda anthems right they're they're singing american pop right people want to watch american movies um you know in the ubiquity you know, with which we've influenced the culture around the world through our arts, through our film, I, I think is a substantial, you know, part of our of our national power. Um, and, it, and it's an important reminder, um, you know, on that trip also went up to the North Korean border. And when you when you look into North Korea, right, there's no Academy Awards. Uh, there's no Grammys. There's no Emmys. Right. There's no Pulitzer Prizes. There's no anything. Mm hmm. Um, and then out of South Korea, you have a thriving film community, right. thriving. I mean, one of the biggest hits last year was uh, was, uh, you know, what was the, the name of the show? It was the, the their Hunger Games. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, we're, we're blanking on the name, but it was uh, like one of the best shows of the year. Uh, by the way, all in Korean, none of it's in English. Right, and, right. It, and it literally was one of the biggest shows of the year. And I think that shows you um, the, the the power of storytelling. How literally this show that came out of South we got to find out what the name of the show was, Steve. Squid Games. Squid, Squid Games. Game. Yes, yes. Which which was like riveting, uh, and and for uh, a literally a show like that to become the biggest show in the world, it just goes to show you the power of storytelling. Again, you know, sort of anti totalitarianism bent to it. I told I told uh, I told a friend of mine who's he's Korean. He lives in Seoul. When that came out, and I watched it, I said, "Holy shit!" I said, "I'm never going to look at a Korean the same again." <laughs> you know, what a wild! I'm just going to pay paying my debts. That's all <laughs> right. I know. I that show. Just going to um, pay all my debts. You know the um. When when you think about America as a story, mm -hmm. and it is a story, right? And uh, it's a it's a fantastic story, and I think it's. And I think it's got claimed to be one of the great stories ever, ever told. Mm -hmm. This moment, um, if you were to imagine a leader who can lead us out of this, and you're writing that person, what does that person say to the country? How do we, how do we get off of our infinite loop here? 
and get get up and out. So if you're sure. if you're going to your secret writing room, your Danny Strong writing room, how do we okay. how do we do that? I think it is someone that can bring two things back to the country, which is truth, a belief in a collective truth, which I think has been lost and which to me is one of the travesties of these times, the sense that there is no truth. And the other word I would use is decency. Someone that could come and, and instill a sense of decency so that even people that we disagree with or dislike, that we could still treat them with decency. And, you know, there was a moment just recently that I thought was quite powerful, which was during the McCarthy, uh, the Kevin McCarthy uh, insanity vote insanity, right? Where it was where we were all watching C-SPAN and it was really hypnotic because the camera was panning around all across the room. I thought if you were to make a movie about that, the lead character would be the cameraman who after his entire career finally got to move the camera, right? And it was it was like the most exciting moment of his life. Is that by the way, Donnie, is that how you see things, the world? Like when you when you see stuff like you're like, if I was gonna do a movie on this. Sometimes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sometimes. Great. So I uh uh but there one thing that I loved was watching people from different parties literally just talking to each other. And there was something about that that we have lost in our discourse where it is, again, more like the Hunger Games, where it's more blood sport, where it's more they're the enemy, as opposed to, hey, can we talk to each other and see if there is some sort of common interest? And I found it very powerful watching AOC talk to a Republican. And I and it was it was a. Uh, it was like endearing. It was like, oh, look at them. It was like heartwarming. It was something that that like what didn't exist anymore in American society of two people in the government of polar opposite points of views, um, literally just talking to each other. And I think that there is something powerful in that image. And if there were maybe some more purple state congressmen who there was something in it for them, uh, uh, to have some sort of a more bipartisan uh, stance, even just in appearance, right? Um, or, you know, senators that are in states that it's so safe for them, you know, that are extremely popular, just to publicly talk to the other side like that, I think it actually have some sort of meaningful effect of a cooling of the rage that, that exists between both sides. Um, and I know maybe that sounds corny or overly idealistic, but there was something very powerful to me about watching watching that occur on the congressional floor and very, very simple. It, really, it, it, was, it was this very simple of, of like, oh, this is, I, this is how it's supposed to work. Last question for you. Uh-huh. Um, going back to recount. Sure. The aftermath of the the Florida election in 2000, you know, clearly the system is not designed for a presidential campaign to be decided by 535 votes. Um, I think there are a couple of things that are that are clear about that. One, 
um, more people in the state of Florida than not uh, intended to vote against George W. Bush, who ultimately won the state, than intended to vote for him. And more people intended to vote for Al Gore than than intended to vote for for George W. Bush. At 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 that level, though, five hundred thirty five votes. Uh, neither side is going to walk away from it. Um, they're going to do everything they can to take power, and one side is going to walk away from that experience deeply, deeply unhappy. So that that question isn't that. It's not about partisan unhappiness. Yeah. It's about how history would have would have been different. Because I'm I'm sure you've thought about that question if it had been Al Gore who took the oath of office uh, on January 20th, 2001, and had been in office on September 11th. Um, have you thought about that um, over over the years? And how do you think yeah. history might have might have been? been been different or do you think it would have turned out roughly roughly the same that the events would have carried yeah. us into iraq and it's a it's a it's a very profound question obviously a deeply speculative question i think that the i think history would have been extremely different i do believe that gore would have lost his re-election in 2004 Right. So I don't believe the Supreme Court would have been different. I don't believe the Dems would have picked up a seat between 2000 and 2004. I do think how history would have shifted is what you just said, which is the Iraq war. You know, that there was a march to that war that the people that wanted us to go to that war, the, the, the so-called neocons led by Paul Wolfowitz, that that was their agenda uh, pre. It was their agenda since 1993 right? That that was their primary goal. And they saw 9-11 is a way to um, make that agenda happen. And that that led to uh, what I view as the big lie of that era, which is that Saddam, uh, Saddam Hussein was responsible for 9-11. Okay, he was not responsible for 9-11. Um, but that that big lie, that never would have happened with Al Gore. I don't think Al Gore would have even thought about, you know, going into Iraq based upon uh, the events of 9-11. So some people have argued that that 9-11 might not have happened because Richard Clark would have been, quote unquote, shaking the trees had he had not been veered off of um, uh, Osama bin Laden and onto uh, Saddam Hussein uh, during that period. I think that's extremely speculative. Uh, but I, I do think it's I think you'd find very few people that would argue that Al Gore would have taken us into Iraq uh, and that completely redefined the era and redefined uh, Bush's administration. I think that he would have had a much more uh, successful administration had he had not taken those actions. It may define the next hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. How do you how do you think it may define the next hundred years? I, I've, I haven't heard it in that uh that stark uh, statement well i think that i think that i've talked about this is that the the visionary of the world that we live in you know its architect was franklin roosevelt and he was hosting the canadian prime minister in the white house towards the end of the war and mackenzie king was very very conscious by that point this is a world historical figure 
And what he tended to do is after they'd have cocktails, he would go and he would he would write down and memorialize every every sentence that FDR had said as and he what he's talking about is the UN Declaration of Human Rights. What he's what he's talking about, right, are the collective security agreements that emerge after the second the Second World War. And he says to Mackenzie King, he, he says that his ambition is not that this new world order, American-led, um, will last forever, you know, because nothing does, just that it'll last as long as everyone who is alive on the day the war is won is still alive. And the youngest of those people, you know, are 78, 78 years old. So when when you look at the cost, um, $2 trillion of the public treasuries, the moral injuries inflicted on the 1% of the country that fought the wars, um, a veteran population uh, that will live for another 50, 60 years um, in this country, uh, the strengthening of Iran across the Levant, uh, all of the downrange consequences um, that allowed over a 20-year period for there to be a rise again in great power competition, right? Where there's now a direct challenge by the Chinese to that to that world order. Now, I think like one of the things that's a that's a, an important thing to kind of understand, you know, about American power around the world is if you go to Vietnam and you get on the Vietnamese airline, it's a, it's a brand new uh, Boeing 737, but all of the procedures, right, for that airline as you get on it are identical, right, to if you were on the shuttle between New York and, and D.C. or on a Southwest flight. Why is that? That's because in order for that airline to be a partner airline with a American airline, points and all that, they have to follow the FAA's rules. Do, do you want to fly on airplanes, right, in the world that the regulations are done by the Chinese? I don't. Russians and the Brazilians? I, I don't think I don't think anyone else does. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone else does either. But I guess I asked the question in the context of, I do believe just recently in Vietnam, swimming in the beach, looking at the spot where the Marines came ashore in 1965, is that I deeply believe that John Kennedy would not have committed ground troops to to, to Vietnam. Um, that would have profoundly altered history. But the consequences of these of these presidential elections are profound. Profound. Um, yeah, staggering. I mean, you know, the and the psychological effects in the last generations. I mean, you look at World War II and the undiagnosed PTSD of all the veterans coming back. What effect, what psychological effect does that have on the baby boomers, on their kids, right? Of having a parent, of growing up with a parent with undiagnosed PTSD. And then what effect does that have on the baby boomers and how they raise their kids? Uh, and, and it's this sort of ongoing, in some ways, tragedy of psychological damage that's spread from generation to generation. 
that is this sort of never ending consequence of, of war and, and the damage that war can do. And when we were when we were marching towards Iraq uh, in 2001, uh, one of the voices of that was was Colin Powell, someone who had seen war and understood war and was and was trying to prevent that invasion. Um, and it's because he was someone that knew firsthand um, the damage it could do for for generations and generations. By the way, and what we didn't even discuss is the generations of Iraqis. What it's done to that country uh, is is you know staggering and shameful and, and and deeply tragic. Well, Danny, always an interesting conversation. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, yeah, it was a pleasure. It was great, great seeing you. And I'm going to call you. My pleasure. All right, I'll talk to you soon. From you, always. See you, buddy.